It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. And it's knowing I'm not shackled. And you're listening to Glenn Campbell's Gentle on My Mind. And for the hour, we're going to talk about Glenn Campbell's life because he was born on this day in history in 1936. And my goodness, what a life, what a musician, what a businessman, the whole nine yards. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this particular segment, Glenn Campbell's Life, we're about to dive deep because we love to dive deep with big stories and big personalities. He sold 45 million records. He starred in True Grit, for goodness sake, a movie classic. He hosted his own TV show, The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. And let me tell you, you talk to any musician, and they'll say one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Played in a little band called The Wrecking Crew, which played for everybody. Hit records across every musical idiom. That and so much more on this hour. And as always, these lives, well, they start out humbly. Glenn was born in 1936, raised near a one-horse town called Delight, Arkansas. We were poor. Uh, you know, we, we were, my dad was a sharecropper, farmer. We didn't have electricity. I was raised back on the farm. You know, you pick the cotton and you get the cows in and milk them. You, you know, you slaughter the animals to eat. We cooked the corn and had it ground. You know, we were, it was, it was, we were poor. Who was it, Roger Miller or somebody said they were so poor their folks couldn't afford laxatives. We sang and played. My parents were very musical. They taught me some wonderful old songs like Silver Haired Daddy of Mine and You Are My Sunshine and those songs from the 30s when they were singing, you know. And there's not a lot of woe is me with this poverty either. That's what's interesting. At four years old, Glenn Campbell's uncle gave him a $5 Sears guitar and taught him the basics. It wasn't long before he was playing in front of live audiences. Well, there was a guitar and a mandolin. And I first took up the mandolin because I could get my hand around the neck, you know, probably the age of five, maybe four, five, six, somewhere along in there. But then I later I stuck with the guitar because it was easier to play. I think it was at the Hope Forest Festival. It was in, in Prescott. It was in Prescott, Arkansas, Forest Festival. In fact, I did an album called I Remember Hank Williams, and uh, the, the photo on the album was taken with my uncle and I. I must have been 12 at the time or something like that. I mean, for a big audience. Now, we had musicals. Back at Grandpa Campbell's house, you know, probably once a month on a Saturday night. And there would be a couple of hundred people there maybe at a time, you know, just saying and do something. But that was the first time I played where we uh, actually got, I think we got five bucks a piece for playing that gig. And he never forgot it. Campbell never received any formal training. He dropped out of high school at 14 before he landed his first professional gig. When I went to New Mexico, I was, I was about, maybe I just turned uh, 15 and I went, to, I went out with some friends of moms and dads. They let me go out for the summer. And it was a guy out there named Texas Slim. And we played a place called Coon Holler in Regina, New Mexico. We played on Friday and Saturday night at a barn dance. There was two guitars and a fiddle. And I did the, we had a rhythm guitar player, and I played lead and sang the songs. And Texas Slim would play fiddle and sing. 
and they we, they played this dance music. And the the hall where they danced was separate from the bar. You had to go out of the one building and then go into this little, little other place where they sold the whiskey and stuff. And I couldn't go in there, but I could go in the dance hall. And that was my first really professional gig. I think we got uh, maybe seven eight dollars a night for doing that. And he keeps getting paid more and more. For his next break, young Glenn realized that he had a relative in another state who just happened to have his own radio show. My uncle had a band in Albuquerque. A guy that was married to my dad's sister, his name was Dick Bill. He had a band called the Sandia Mountain Boys. And they were on KOB radio, five days a week with a noonday roundup. I stopped off and played some for him and sang. I just, you know, maybe a month and a half to two months later, he called Texas and wanted to know if mom and dad would let me come out and join his band. And that's... That was really big time then. I'm talking 80 bucks a week, you know. <laughs> well, I quit Michael's band after about four years. The radio show had gone, so that was a real incentive for me to be on radio, you know. And uh, we played all over, you know, New Mexico, eastern Arizona, west Texas, southern Colorado, because that's where the radio station would reach. But my next gig, I moved it up to about, I was making about 115 a week at a place called the Hitchin Post in Albuquerque for a couple of years. You got that hankering, as they say back home, to go west, you know. Go west, young man. And West, he went. One thing that some people might not know about Glenn, he was a world-class studio musician. Campbell found a daytime job at publishing company American Music in L.A., writing songs and recording demos for other artists. Because of these demos, Campbell soon was in demand as a session player and became part of a group of studio musicians later known as the Wrecking Crew. I was making so much money doing studio work, I didn't want to go through that routine of going out and playing gigs for, you know, a hundred a night. You could make that doing a session. And I went out and did some club gigs, but I couldn't, I couldn't make as much doing that as I could doing studio work. And that's why I just said, you know, I don't, I don't really care to be an artist. I'm, I really enjoy hanging around. I was hanging around the greatest musicians in the world. And that's where you learn how to play, you know, and we got to work with so many different people, you know. Nat King Cole, boy, what a... For me, I mean, that was such a thrill because... I'd rather been doing that and going out and playing some joint, you know, or trying to go out and, you know, become an artist and get on the road by yourself. I didn't really want to do that. And what a musician he was. He played with the Beach Boys, Mo Haggard, did so many Phil Spector singles and songs, that wall of sound that Phil Spector created, and, of course, Frank Sinatra. And so you don't get much more of a musical repertoire than that. And when we come back... We're going to learn more about Glenn Campbell, his partnership with the great Jimmy Webb, his collaboration with a great songwriter. We're going to learn more about his battle with drugs and alcohol. Glenn Campbell's life story. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
By the time I get to Phoenix She'll be rising She'll find the note I left hanging On her door She'll laugh when she reads the part That says I'm leaving Cause I've left that girl So many times before By the time I make Albuquerque She'll be working And you're listening to Glenn Campbell with his second big hit and the beginning of the biggest collaboration of his life. He had some failed marriages. Ultimately, he got that right, too, and we'll get to that. But the most important marriage of his life was with a songwriter named Jimmy Webb, and Jimmy wrote that song. And most of the great hits that Glenn sang, and there are very few combinations like this. Bernie Taupin and Elton John, my goodness, you couldn't imagine... Bernie Taupin's lyrics being with anybody but Elton John's music. Lerner and Lowe, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And I think Webb and Campbell are right in there. And if it's one thing we've learned about music and all the time we've done our stories, it's a deeply collaborative, collaborative medium between musicians and writers. And so let's hear from Jimmy Webb talking about where he gets his inspiration for songwriting. Turns out from the same place Glenn got his singing inspiration. In a way, I guess you could say it was a form of show business. My dad was an evangelist uh, in the summers, and I'd, went, I'd go on the road with my dad and play piano for my dad. And so in, in, from that aspect of it, of getting in front of the public and playing the piano and all that, all of it came out of church. All of it. I mean, it couldn't have come from anywhere else. Um, in, in terms of, of, of the, the lyric content or the... Um, the poetic content of the songs I write. I guess I was heavily influenced by country music, by Hank Williams and uh, all the fine country writers that my dad liked to listen to. We could, we'd, we'd, ha- we'd reach for the radio to change it off of a country station, and he'd, you know, stab us in the back of the hand with a fork, you know? Because <laughs> just could not listen to Elvis Presley in my dad's car. So I was really influenced by country. And, of course, that's where Glenn made his living in the end. Here's Jimmy Webb with Glenn Campbell in a session they did together. Webb tells us about the song and writing Wichita Lineman before we then hear Glenn Campbell perform the song. When I wrote Wichita Lineman, I was doing a follow-up for one of the only times in my life as a songwriter. Glenn had called me and said, I need a follow-up for by the time I get to Phoenix. Will you write one? And... It's one of the few times in my life when I was successful in doing that because a lot of times I've written follow-ups that either weren't done or if they were done, maybe they didn't eventually turn out to be the single or whatever. But maybe three times in my life I've written a follow-up that actually followed, that did what it was supposed to. It followed the record uh, and became a hit and got on the radio and that was one of them. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road 
Galveston was another song that Jimmy Webb wrote for Glenn Campbell. When Glenn first recorded Galveston, he kind of did it as a, in a medium march. It was like, it was a little faster than I had intended it for it to be. But then I wasn't complaining either because it was top ten. And you all know the up-tempo version. Here's Glenn and Jimmy in the studio talking about where this song came from before we then hear Glenn Campbell perform the slower version of Galveston. As the years have gone by, the tempo seems to have settled back, you know, to where it was originally meant to be. And it's almost as though songs want songs know where, where they want to be sung. They know how fast they want to be sung. And if you try to sing them any faster, they, they creak and they protest and they complain until finally you get them back to where, where they should have, should have been maybe in the beginning. Galveston, oh Galveston I still hear your sea winds blowing And I still see 
She was 21 when I scoured the stream. Galveston, oh Galveston, I still hear your sea waves crashing while I watch the cannons flashing. I clean my gun. Then dream of Galveston. And when we come back, more on the life of Glenn Campbell. By the way, Galveston, if you listen carefully, it's a Vietnam soldier stuck overseas, dreaming about the town he's from and the girl he left behind. And when we come back, more on the life of Glenn Campbell, his story, Jimmy Webb's story, here on Our American Stories. On the beach where we used to This is Our American Story. We continue our celebration of the life of Glenn Campbell. Here he is there in this song live in South Dakota playing classical gas. What a guitarist Glenn Campbell was. It's no secret that Glenn had an appetite for drugs and alcohol. This was something he would struggle with on and off through his entire life. I was just a total alcoholic, you know, and I was dabbing in cocaine, and I couldn't smoke marijuana, and thank God I couldn't stick a needle in me. So it was, it was cocaine was my choice of, of drug at that time. Uh, but it wasn't no, so much the, the drugs, it was the alcohol. 
I, I, I got, you know, if I'd come, when I come to England, you know, I'd, when I played Scotland, I'd go buy teachers of the factory up there and stock up, you know. <laughs> and, but it was, a, and then I got into the Glen Levitt. That's even stronger, you know. But it would. I would set, I could drink a, I'd drink a fifth of scotch a day probably sometimes. I laid, I remember laying for like six hours just totally praying, you know, God, get me out of this and I won't do this anymore. And you know what? I didn't do that drug anymore after that, but I still kept the whiskey. I kept on drinking the whiskey. And finally, I was delivered from that only 11 years ago. And it was his Christian faith that helped him stay away from drugs and alcohol. It was always his foundation. I went to church when I was a child. Dad, Mom took all the kids to church, and they, I remember the first Bible line that I, verse that I learned was Matthew 5.17. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. It's the basics of it. I didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, what Jesus said. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Well, that's always stuck with me, and it's always made me want to go back and read the prophets because Christ had to tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he didn't come to destroy them, you know, but they didn't. They obviously hadn't read the, the scriptures because 80% of the prophecies in the Old Testament have come to pass, including the nation of Israel being reborn again. In late 2010, Glenn Campbell was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but Glenn wouldn't leave this world without a fight. He'd conquered his drug addiction but this was the biggest of his life. And rather than lay down and die, he did the one thing he could. He went on tour. In the documentary about the end of his life, Glenn Campbell, I'll Be Me, we follow Glenn along with his friends and family on that final tour. It's a remarkable film that shows the brutal and devastating effects that Alzheimer's has on the human mind, but it also shows an incredible look into the life of a talented musician living out his final days on stage. We join Glenn Campbell and his wife at the doctor's office for one of his regular exams. What month do you think this is? Uh, what is it? I don't know. I just go look. Okay. What, what time of the year? Are we in winter, spring, summer, or fall? I don't worry about those don't things. Don't worry about that. I don't worry about them. All right. Do you know the year? What year oh, is it? 1870, something like that. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> No, I don't pay any attention to those things. Okay. But when it's needed, I take care of that. How old are you now? I don't know. How old am I? And listening to Glenn handle this is pretty remarkable because clearly he has no idea. Hearing someone in that condition can be upsetting even to a total stranger, let alone his family, that had to watch him slip away. But rather than putting him in a nursing home or in a hospice, Glenn's family and friends made sure he was still able to perform on stage. He is unable to give you the day, year, or date of his birth, but he could still sing, and he could still play guitar. Here's one of those guitar solos from his final tour. It's great guitar picking, and remarkable considering the state of his mental condition at the time of this recording.
not bad picking from anybody, any human being, let alone someone with Alzheimer's. When Glenn Campbell passed, everyone from country music came out to pay tribute. Dolly Parton, Charlie Daniels, Vince Gill, you name them. They were giving their memories, giving their condolences. But it wasn't just country music fans that mourned the loss of Glenn Campbell. Here's legendary rock star Alice Cooper, a friend, a fellow Christian, and fellow golfer. I know Glenn and I are the same faith. We're both Christian, and uh, I know where he is now. And I know that he's in a perfect place. Um, Glenn was one of the most unique guys. You know, you, you think of Glenn country, Alice Cooper rock and roll. We couldn't have been closer. He was one of the premier guitar players in, in both rock and uh, country. And pe- a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, when the respect he had in the rock and roll world, people like Eddie Van Halen one time, you know, said, can you get me a guitar lesson with Glenn? Now most rockers would go, what? That's the kind of guitar player he was. He was, he was considered one of the five best guitar players out there. Um, and it's not, but he was the most unique guy. Uh, I played a lot of golf with Glenn had a lot of laughs with him uh, and when I heard this happening I was almost hoping that he would go sooner because I know that it's a long slow cruel death when he was asked how he wanted to be remembered this is what Glenn Campbell had to say just for what I am that's you know it's I'm Glenn Campbell and I believe in God and I believe in other people like the way you want to be treated and to help others less fortunate. Music is really incredible. You know, it's just it's something you just, it's a gift. And I try to do that. And, uh, wow. I'm thankful. And, and we're thankful, too. It was a gift that you had, Glenn, and you treated your gift so well. What a life story, Glenn Campbell's story. Born on this day in history in 1936. And what gratefulness we have and what gratitude we have to Hillsdale College for their support here. All of our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks there. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. Glenn Campbell, well, his life and his music made the world a better place. His faith saved him from his addiction, and his loving wife helped shepherd him through a rough, rough patch with Alzheimer's. And what a family to bring Dad out on that final tour Alzheimer's and all, for all the world to see. It was a beautiful thing. And we're going to end things with a song from his final record. It was a spiritual album, a gospel record of his sorts. And this song was our favorite. It's called A Better Place. Glenn Campbell, born on this day in history in 1936. This is Our American Stories. I've tried and I have failed, Lord I've won and I have lost I've lived and I have loved, Lord Sometimes at such a cost One thing I know The world's been good to me A better place Awaits you'll see 
Some days I'm so confused, Lord My past gets in my way I need the ones I love, Lord More and more each day Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific. Real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Hedberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got, I got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny, then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. <laughs> his comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes, mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. <laughs> I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. 
I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad. Cool, I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. (laughs) To hell with purple people. Unless they're suffocating. (laughs) Then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type, you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did, he said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes, and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. (laughs) Where were you? I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke. That joke. That joke is dumb, I'm aware of that. Advil has a candy coating, it's delicious. And it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have 10 Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. (laughs) I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. 
Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's Farm Bread. That stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it, and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. <laughs> oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-sized bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All day. This is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job even at the peak of his fame because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes, he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went to a... I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes. All exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we want to hear your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We love to bring you wise voices, too, who can share their wealth of life experience and wisdom with us. This nation has so many of them. They're in a town near you, and, well, we bring them to you. They're not famous people, but, my goodness, they're much more important. They're not seeking fame, but, boy, do they have something to offer called wisdom. And Frank Hanna, well, he has one of those voices. He's a husband, a father. He's an investor who lives in the Atlanta area and who we now get to hear from in our latest edition of our regular feature, Don't Be a Fool, with Frank Hanna. Who does wealth belong to? Who do the material goods of this earth belong to? And, you know, interestingly enough, no matter what faith tradition someone may come from, or even for an avowed pagan and avowed atheist. For most people, there is a sense somewhere within them that if I have more food than I need on my plate and you are sitting next to me and you are starving, that I ought to give you some of mine. Now, obviously, I'm giving the most blatant example of when one ought to share one's goods, okay? But I think it's hard to imagine anyone other than someone who's just avowed toward evil, right? Who would say, no, I have way more than I can even eat on my plate. Someone's starving next to me, and I'm not going to give them something to eat. I mean, almost everyone would say, well, yes, you would, you would share that. And if you push them further, they'd probably say, you're obliged to share that. So once we, even if it's all yours, even if you bought your food with your money, or even if you grew all this food on your farm, you toiled, you worked, even with all that, you, you did everything, boom, there it is, the food's on your plate, you're still probably obliged to give them something. So once we acknowledge that, we're on our way towards saying, hmm, I'm not going to live forever. There are a lot of earthly goods here. These things here on earth probably don't exist just for me. So once you, you, know, once you acknowledge that, which almost everybody would kind of have to acknowledge that to some degree, okay? We then bump up against, though, this notion of private property. So the question is how to, how to reconcile you know, Thomas Aquinas talked about the needs for private property, and he gave some very good reasons that private property exists. And he, he studied a lot of different societies, and, and he found that people actually, they take care of things better when it's their own private property. They're more likely to bring more out, be more productive with it. He said there's more order in society if things are private. You know, because you're not always squabbling over whose turn or this or that. To, to, to use the horse for a plow, you know, there's, there's more order in society. And he and many other great thinkers, and most societies have realized, you know, allowing for private ownership promotes the well-being of everyone, okay? So we have these two kind of competing realizations. One is that private property is a good thing. 
And yet another is, you know, the goods of this earth aren't just here for me. That there's a universal destination. And in fact, that destination, that destiny for goods is to be used for everyone. Therein lies the rub for anyone who has more than they need. Because the question then becomes, how ought I to live? You know, and, and especially for Americans who we are, the 300 million people who live in this country are wealthier than 99.9% .9 of the human beings who have ever lived. Wealthier in terms of material terms. We just, we just have so much stuff, so much, so much food, so much shelter, so much clothing. In this country, yes, there are a few homeless people, many, many times because of mental illness and things, <clears throat> which is terrible, but the point is, we're not lacking for the money to feed everyone in this country. And most people actually do have full bellies. Not only do they have full bellies and a roof over their head and clothes on their back, mm, over 95% of the people have big, you know, color TVs and air conditioning and all that kind of thing too. So I mean, the, the, the material wealth is just incredible. I think that's one reason you see in the U.S. it's one of the most generous countries in the world. People do give away a lot of their money because they do feel this sense. The difficulty comes, I think, in determining yeah, but let's say that I'm, I don't want to just offer a guilt offering of, of money, that I want to live the right way. We are stewards of the wealth we have. What is a steward? A steward is somebody who watches over something, not as if they own it and can do anything they want with it but more as someone who has a responsibility for administering something. Are they entitled to just compensation for administering it? Sure. You know, if I put something of mine, uh, if, if I ask you to watch over it for 20 years and watch over, let's say, a beach house, right, and take care of it, I'm fine paying you for watching over that house, but I don't want you to start thinking that house is yours, right, because I just put you in charge of it to watch over it for when I need it. And so I think it's healthy for us to consider that the material goods that are in our possession, that we're stewards of those, uh, that we don't own them. And you know, in the book I compare, imagine that the president of the bank starts to think that the money in the vault that the depositors have put in there is his own money. I mean, we've got a problem then if he starts spending it like it's his own money. It's not his money. We put it in the vault and we asked him to watch it. And you're listening to Frank Hanna. And by the way, the book he was referring to was What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And you can get it at Amazon.com. Also, he's written A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Didn't Teach You in College That Could Make All the Difference. And when we come back, we'll continue with Frank Hanna and Don't Be a Fool after these messages. And we continue here on Our American Stories. 
with Don't Be a Fool with Frank Hanna. And Frank is a husband, a father, and an investor who lives in the Atlanta area. And Frank also happens to be Lebanese-American, and, and I am too. And so in the end, we Lebanese folks, we, we sort of know each other. It's really crazy how we... We sort of stick together, find each other, and talk about life here in this great country. And so let's return to Frank Hanna and his story about stewardship, about money, and about, well, what to do with it. So I think when we start to, you know, I've had people, because I had some business success, and I remember somebody once saying to me when I was talking to them about some of these issues, well, it's your money, you can do whatever you want with it. And I thought, well, that doesn't, I'm not sure I agree with that. That doesn't feel right. I know it's common to hear that, but it doesn't feel right. And I thought, why does it not feel right? Uh, and I, two reasons. One is I thought, do anything you want with it. That doesn't, that doesn't ever sound right. You know, I mean, I don't want to do evil things with it, okay? Even if it is my money. But the other part is, is it my money? I mean, when I die, it won't be my money anymore. It'll be somebody else's money. So it's not something like stays in my name forever. It belongs to this earth. It's sort of like, is the, is the soil that's underneath my feet when I'm walking, is that, is that my soil? It's going to be here when I'm gone. And so I, I think the idea that we're passing through, that we have stewardship of things, but they're, they're not just ours to do with whatever we want. And, and this is a little bit radical thinking. You know, people used to view, uh, wives used to be regarded as chattel, as property. You could kind of, uh, like a cow. And, and there's some cultures that's, that's still the case, all right? Wives and children, you know, people used to negotiate off daughters, right, to form alliances and stuff, and they'd put together marriages, right, and they'd kind of treat the kids like they were this thing to be bartered. That's a real problem. That's a real problem against human dignity. So I think in the same way that we, we shouldn't think of human beings like that, I think we ought to, I don't think we ought to think of ourselves in that way. I, I don't know about this idea, you know, in America, I love freedom, I love that foundational concept of our country, but I don't believe that freedom is the greatest good. I think love is the greatest good. And interestingly enough, Love almost always requires some sacrifice of freedom. So between love and freedom, love ranks higher. So f- freedom's important, but I think even with our own lives, I think we're supposed to be stewards of our own lives. I did not earn my intellect, my energy level, where I was born, my parents. I mean, there's so many things. And so, yeah, we know the phrase, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I look around and I think, the harmony I hear with my ears, the sunsets I see, these things are all free. I, ain't gotta, I didn't earn any of them. All those beautiful, sublime things, when my grandson smiles at me, I didn't earn that. I mean, you know, so many of these wonderful things I didn't earn. And so for people to say, oh, no, that's yours. It all belongs to you. I, I think, uh, now, I'm not in any way for the state, some government, getting involved in that, okay? I think it almost always leads to ruin. I am for free markets, you know, minimal regulation, minimal government, because I think government kind of gives one group of 
human beings, the capability of controlling another group of human beings, and, and it rarely turns out well. But I do think within our voluntary organizations with which you associate, our families, our workplaces, our churches, that we ought to take more of an approach that we are stewards of what we have. I did a couple of things in the book. One is I looked at the different kinds of ways we might spend money. So, you know, I think to spend money on what I call the fundamentals of life, you know, food and shelter and clothes, I think that's not only justified, that's, that's what we ought to do for our children and those we love, you know, spend money on that. And then I go through and I kind of divide between non-essential goods and essential goods. You know, there's some things that I have to spend for my work. Right? And they may be a luxury to somebody who's starving in South America, but for me and my work, you know, it's justified for me to spend that money. But I think if we, if we break down our goods in looking at what's fundamental, what's essential, what's non-essential, we can start to then assess, well, how, what, ought, what ought I to do with this non-essential wealth? This is not something that I really need. I don't want to pretend that I don't have any luxuries in my life. I do. I'm sitting in air conditioning right now. And for most of human history, that's been an enormous luxury. I enjoy golf, you know, and that's a, but, but I do think it's important to continually be mindful. I think part of the whole issue of living ethically with wealth is to have a mindfulness about it. A little bit like the way we can eat now. Now let's face it, one reason we're able to get fat is that centuries ago, there was no food in the winter because everything was snow covered. So we would eat as much as we could in the summer and the fall, almost like bears, and we would fatten up and then kind of live off of that because there wasn't much. We'd store up some food, but we didn't eat as much in the winter, right? Well, now we can eat all we want. And everybody in America can eat all they want almost whenever they want. So what do we do? Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. It doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy your food. It doesn't mean you can't have dessert every now and then. But you do have to be mindful. If you're not mindful, you're going to get unhealthy. You're going to eat so much you're unhealthy. So I think we kind of have to address wealth in the same way. You know, it's okay to spend some money. It's okay to, you know, to have a nice car. Do you need a Maserati? No, it's hard to say you need a Maserati. And I think you even have to say, if I got a Maserati, what's that gonna, how's that gonna affect me? How's that gonna affect my friends? How's that gonna affect my neighbors? If I've got young kids, how's that gonna affect my kids? What are my kids gonna think when dad's driving around in a Maserati? Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about a Maserati, but it does have an effect. There's nothing inherently sinful about chocolate cake, but if you eat a whole chocolate cake every day, there's gonna be ramifications, right? So I think a lot of living ethically, morally with wealth is this mindfulness of the fact that many of us have more than we need. And so just like most of us have more food available to us than we ought to eat. And, and in fact, if you look, I mean, probably the biggest epidemic, the biggest health epidemic in the United States of America today is obesity. That is the biggest, and it has all these ramifications, right? Because it's, food's good and it's hard to turn it down. And if you're not mindful, we all eat too much of it. So, so I think it's kind of the same thing with money and the, and the goods we can buy. I think it, it requires that mindfulness. Mm -hmm.
we all rely on society's conventional wisdom. That, that, that we kind of have to do that to get through the day. You can't th think through everything on your own. You have to, but, but I think when it's the really important matters, that we do need to stop and be more deliberate. And that's why the things like what you should do with your money, that's really an important thing. That's why I wrote the book, okay? That's why it says what your money means and how to use it well. I have found that for, for almost everybody, rich, poor, or and in between, that how they think about their money, what they do to get their money, and what they do with their money affects their lives dramatically. And I believe most of us aren't deliberate about it, that we just swim along with the currents of the convention that are in our society. And that's okay when it comes to uh, whether it, uh, you, you know, mayonnaise is better on a hamburger than ketchup, okay? And, and you just rely on what other people say. That's fairly trivial stuff. When it comes to things like how you use your money, I think we have to be more thoughtful. And you've been listening to Frank Hanna in our Don't Be a Fool series. And again, if you know someone like Frank, a man or a woman in your neighborhood who has great wisdom, a person who has accomplished things or knows things or people seek advice from, uh, send them to us, ouramericannetwork.org. Uh, from all around this great country, we know there is great wisdom. And the book, by the way, is What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And you can pick it up at Amazon.com. That's Frank Hanna we've been listening to. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a son. And he's an investor in the Atlanta area. And he's someone I know and whose family I know and admire. And again, send those that you know to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Don't be a fool. In a way, it's so much more than just advice. It's how to think about something as important as money and how to use it, how to spend it, and what it means to you, your family, and your community. This is Our American Stories. stories and we love going on road trips because Americans love road trips and when we're on those trips we talk to people across this great beautiful country and we sent some of our team on a tour of the south not long ago and on that trip they found themselves at the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg Mississippi take it away Faith I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Coca-Cola. As American as apple pie. It began with a flavored syrup combined with carbonated water that was invented by Atlanta druggist John S. Pemberton in 1886. 
it has gone on to become one of the most beloved refreshments of the modern world. Coca-Cola's popularity declined for years until a businessman named Asa Griggs Candler took over the business following Pemmerman's death in 1888. But it wasn't the soda fountain drink that really got it going. It was the ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And the first bottling of Coca-Cola didn't happen until eight years later with a German immigrant family. My name is Nancy Bell, and I am the executive director of the Vicksburg Foundation for Historic Preservation. And this is the Beanhorn Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. This is where Coca-Cola was first bottled anywhere in the world in 1894. This building was built in 1890. And this is where the Beanhorns had a candy store. They also made cakes. They did all kinds of things. They bottled their own soda water. It was a strawberry flavor. And so, of course, they had their own bottles with Beanhorn Candy Company on them in which they bottled that. Um, they operated a soda fountain. And in the soda fountain, of course, there were a variety of flavors. Um, there were literally hundreds of flavors of drinks in those days. And so, you know, Mr. Beanhorn had, had a selection of drinks other than his own. If you wanted his, he, as I said, had his own bottles. And so he would put his, his drink in, the, in a bottle and then um, bottle up a case of it. He'd send it uh, out to your location if you wanted to. They bottled for half a day and then they would deliver for the other half of the day. They came from Germany um, to, to Vicksburg uh, by way of New Orleans, I believe, and um, they were candy makers. And so they had their, they made candy in their little, little shop. And then, you know, eventually they added just like most entrepreneurs, you know, they added more things to it. And they looked, um, I think they, they looked to the future and they saw, okay, people are doing um, soda fountains. You know, soda fountains became more and more, and so they, they included that into their, they were baking cakes, they were doing, and then, oh, wow, yeah, we can bottle our own now, you know. I, I think they were just good entrepreneurs. I think they were just um, um, smart and not, um, thinking about the present, they were looking to the future. And I'm not sure the Coca-Cola company was doing that at that time. They were saying that, yeah, we're, we're distributing in the Southeast, and yes, we're, we're getting others to do it for us too, and um, our money, though, is, is in soda fountains. That's where it is. I don't think they thought really ahead of that because they were in Atlanta and because they were in an urban area, and they, you know, I think that made a difference too as opposed to Ms. Breedenhorn, and while I said Vicksburg was the biggest city in the state at that time, we still were, were, were very rural as well. I mean, he would deliver to picnics. You know, I mean, you know, we're, we're having a picnic out here with you know, 50 people, can you deliver? Yeah, heck yeah. So as time went on, um, people became really uh, more a fan of Coca-Cola than of Mr. Breedenhorn's flavor and they wanted to know why they couldn't get Coca-Cola also. Why, why could they only get his flavor in a bottle and not Coca-Cola in a bottle? Because you know, when you came in, you came to a soda fountain, big beautiful soda fountain, and you got it in a really pretty little glass, but at the end, you left the, the glass, you couldn't take the Coca-Cola with you. So, so many people asked that he um, decided that he would bottle some Coca-Cola. He bottled it in his own bottles. He bottled up a case, he sent it to Atlanta to ask for permission. And they said, yeah, you can bottle if you want to. Won't amount to anything, but if you want to do it, go ahead. 
And of course, that's really what launched Coca-Cola was that ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Soda fountains were the thing of the day. Um, they were, you know, the places you went, they competed with each other to make bigger, more elaborate, all of that. So I think the Coca-Cola company didn't see past that. The Beanhorns, um, you know, continue to make candy. They continue to um, operate their soda fountains. And then when they found that Coca-Cola was really where they could make more money, um, then they built other buildings and started, of course, wholesale distributing of, of Coca-Cola in this area. Um, they did not have a contract at that time with Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola, of course, knew that they were doing this. In 1902, Coca-Cola signed with Chattanooga as the very first actual contract, you know, um, and at that time they said, now you can have these areas, but you can't have any areas that Mr. Beanhorn is already bottling in. So of course they recognized what he was doing, and then they ended up with the contract with him um, for different areas. Nowadays, we can get soda anytime we want. We simply go to the store and pick up some bottles or cans of Coke. But this process of bottling was no easy task when it first began. We have a reproduction of the bottling works that was first used to bottle Coca-Cola. So what we forget is, while yes, you could go down to the store and buy um, carbonated water, it, you didn't buy it in tremendous amounts. So it really made a lot more sense to make your own carbonated water. So you had to use marble chips, you had to use acid, you had to, you know, you had to, to drop the marble chips into the acid and then rotate it carefully. And then that would roll into another container where there was water and then you slowly rocked that until it was incorporated into the, the water and, and all of that. So first you had to do that. And then you had to um, take the syrup was in a large container up high and that would flow into your bottle X amount. And then the, then you filled it with the carbonated water. And then of course you still had to put early on, you had to do the rubber stopper with the wire. Um, these people would wear um, big, heavy leather jackets, wooden shoes, big, um, leather gloves and a mask because they blew up occasionally. So it was not necessarily, you know, the safest occupation. In 1915, the Coca-Cola company decided that they needed a bottle that was their own, their own bottle. Because um, all by then, of course, there were plenty of bottlers, but they were all using their own bottles. And so the Coca-Cola company had a contest, essentially, where they said, we want a design that if you take that bottle and you throw it on the, the ground and it breaks into 100 pieces, any piece you pick up, you're still going to know it's a Coca-Cola bottle. And if you think about it, and you think about that, that, that hobble skirt bottle that has the ridges down the side and all of it, even if you don't pick up the piece that has Coca-Cola on it, um, you would still recognize it as a Coca-Cola bottle. So the company that won was the Root Company. That Root bottle then became the, the Coca-Cola bottle, or the hobble skirt bottle that we call it. Some people call it the Mae West bottle because it's got that shape of Mae West, or at least part of her anyway. Uh, but, so it's, um, but it's a great bottle and uh, used, of course, for, for still used today. Now in 1994, they took that bottle, which they had been using over and over and over and over again. They made it a throwaway bottle and they made it an eight ounce bottle instead of a six and a half ounce bottle. But, you know, today we still sell the little bottles that look like, you know, the six and a half ounce bottles. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the Coca-Cola story, 
Vicksburg story. And by the way, we know Vicksburg mostly from this gigantic and important Civil War battle back in the 1860s. But for me, as a gigantic Coca-Cola fan, I know Vicksburg for that bottle that we were just talking about that I'm holding in my hand and my favorite thing to drink in the world. When we come back, the story of the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. More after these messages. American stories and we've been listening to the story of how Coca-Cola came to be and we've been hearing from Nancy Bell, the executive director for the historic preservation in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And by the way, you'll hear from us often floating out into the country and talking to these great little museums, uh, historical keepers of all kinds of things from those great museums in Philadelphia about our nation's history straight through to the Well, the Mascot Hall of Fame and the Toaster Museum, there are places around this country we cover and want to cover. And now back to the story and back to Nancy Bell. All right, we have a a large collection of bottles and they they run from, you know, 1886 to um, to the current day. Um, And... uh, we, unfortunately, we don't have all of them um, because there are literally thousands of them. So people will come in and they'll look at our collection and they'll say, oh, well, you don't have such and such. And then, you know, I'll just have to send it to you. And most of the time they do. It's fast. It's just great, you know, to get a box and go, well, they really did do that once they got back home. Um, and so we have a Harry Potter bottle, which is one of my favorites. Um, so it's from England. Um, but the Paris, France ones are actually not glass. They're aluminum, but they're pink and white, and they're just cool. Um, so we have lots of sports teams. We have lots of anniversaries of um, cities and states and counties and things like that. Um, we, have, um, we, we have a whole lot from across the world. All around the store and museum, there are tons of old-fashioned advertisements. A lot of what they have has come from donation. Some of Nancy's favorites are the ads from World War II. They seem to capture that wholesome Americana feeling that is so associated with Coca-Cola. Some of my most favorite advertisements, and advertisements are something that we deal with a lot here, um, is the, the advertisements that have to do with World War II. Um, because, of course, they ship tons and tons of Cokes over um, to Europe and to, to Asia and you know to it was it was kind of a feel-good thing you know for them and of course if you look at the advertising for Coca-Cola it is feel-good advertising I mean it is wholesome it is ha- you know um, and so uh, to me the World War II ads are just great it's there's one that says like he's coming home tomorrow you know, it's it, I'm gonna get my Coca-Colas ready. You know, <laughs> my my husband's coming home tomorrow. But it was, so it was feel-good advertising. So in um, so by World War II, of course, they were already shipping lots of stuff over there. It was already a part of the culture of other countries. Um, and the 
And of course you see even in the advertise, some other advertising that they did, they would highlight other countries where they were selling that. Coca-Cola had become something that was uniquely patriotic. It's sold everywhere, but what about it makes it so American? Coca-Cola is the best known icon. And it is the best known icon. It, is made, it was made in America. And so to me, that's what makes it, you know, American, is that it is a tremendous American story. It is this pharmacist who literally was dying. And, you know, he's searching for a medicine or whatever. He invents the world's most popular, most recognized drink. And um, unfortunately dies before he can see it, you know, become something very, you know, huge. <laughs> it's a piece of home that's very, very easy for someone to recognize when you're in a different country. Um, and while those, some of those flavors later on became a different flavor, because if you've gone to the Coca-Cola plant, you know, in Atlanta, if you've gone to their museum, um, they give you some tastes of, of Coca-Cola from other countries and they're different. Part of that's the water, part of that's just what makes, what, what they enjoy. But if you're, if you are a serviceman in wherever in, on earth and you get a Coca-Cola, it's coming from the United States and it's going to taste like home. That's what you know it to be. So to me, that makes it, you know, that makes it America. It is a wholesome American drink, but Coca-Cola had a little bit of a sketchy background. And in talking about the wholesome thing, then you, of course, get into the whole, the whole um, discussion about cocaine and whether there was cocaine in Coca-Cola. And, um, you know, as I said, one of the biggest things about them was that they believed it to be a wholesome product. And uh, it did have cocaine in it. And um, so it was, if you can't get away from it, it's the coca leaf and the cola nut, and that's how you get Coca-Cola. So it had, did have cocaine. They maintain it had a trace of cocaine, that it did not have much, just a trace. And, of course, it had a tremendous amount of caffeine. So, you know, that probably uh, it was a part of it as well. However, they, they were you know, petitioned some by um, parents who didn't like that in there. It was, while it wasn't a new drug, because of course Indians had had it for thousands of years, it was really new to the, you know, the, the population of the United States. But it, they had thought it might help your stomach, they thought it might help you and all these things. They put it in gum, they put it in all kinds of things. So it was not, you know, just in this. Um, and so Mr. Well, Dr. Pemberton, who developed it, he was ill. He was also addicted to another drug. And so he was really kind of looking for something else to help him. And so that's one reason why he included it. Plus, he did a lot of research with the Indians and found that, well, maybe this will help, you know, whatever. Well, when it was, when he passed away and it became, um, the, the ownership became um, under someone else. It was under Mr. Candler then Candler didn't like this. He didn't like it being called dope. He didn't like, I mean, he wanted it to be a wholesome thing. And so in 1903, he took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Now he, the coca leaf is still in there because they just decocainized it because the coca leaf is something that gives the flavor to Coca-Cola. So, but he did take it out and, and took full page ads saying, you know, I took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Oh yeah, there was only a trace amount of cocaine. And, and, and for a while he was even saying it wasn't there, but 
there was a lawsuit and he kind of had to say it in court and so you know it's kind of like okay yeah it's out there yeah. but um, and and if you look at the ingredients early on I mean it's very obvious but um, so he yes he he was very proud of the fact that you know he had because he wanted it to be a wholesome thing it's a family drink you know okay. it's not alcohol and that was one reason why I didn't want the you know the cocaine in there. It's not alcohol. It's it's something that's that is. Um, I can't say that it's necessarily good for you, but it's not bad for you. Um, and so it's something yes that is is um, clear, clean, good ingredients. Um, nothing bad in there that's gonna you know they're gonna harm you. And um, the advertising was families and you know good situations and you know. Um, happy events, um, a woman swimming, you know, I mean it was it was um, actually more of those type of outdoor events and things like that than early on it was like sitting at a bar, not a bar bar, but you know, one of our bars like a soda fountain and drinking it, but, but lots more of the outdoor type atmosphere, things going on, family events, things like that. And we have a, so if you, it's very hard to read, but we have the handwritten um, ingredients that were first in, in 1886 um, and of course it has sugar it had caffeine it had the the coca leaf the cola nut um, caramel flavoring um, I mean it's just a whole list of things and and that's you know who knows how much of this and how much of that it, Pemberton ended up you know doing but when Mr. Candler got it he said there were entirely too many ingredients you know, it was just, it was hard to, to put all of that together and um, and did we really need all those ingredients to come up with this really good taste. Now, how he worked that out, I have no idea. But apparently he did take some things out. And um, so, you know, today you can read the ingredients. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. I mean, it's, it's um, without cocaine, of course. But it changed then. I think it's probably changed a little bit through time. In the 1980s, of course, they went from cane sugar to corn syrup, which to me changed the taste. You can still get Mexican Cokes, which we sell here, that, that have cane sugar in it. And to me, that's what it's supposed to taste like. Coke has a bright flavor, a distinctive flavor, all its own, that has never been equaled. It's bracing, too. Coca-Cola gives you a bit of quick energy that brings you back so refreshed so quickly and with as few calories as half an average juicy grapefruit. Stop at the fountain where Coke is served. Then you can relax with the most asked for soft drink in the whole world, bright and bracing Coca-Cola. Give yourself a break. Have a Coke. Well, that's enough for today. Now for a lively lift. Ice cold Coca-Cola. There's no waistline worry with Coke, you know. Mmm, another thing, the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. As you can hear from the old-fashioned commercial, it was thought that Coke could even be good for you. Many people would disagree today, but the wholesome, home-filled flavor of Coke perhaps does more for the soul than for the body. And that's the cool thing, is, the, you know, that people come in and they're like, I mean, they love Coke. I mean, they just, that's just a part of, you know, my, my grandmother, I mean, she was 90 years old. She still wanted to have her little Cokes, you know. I mean, it was, it was something that was very, very important to her. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And by the way, I think of bright and bracing all the time when I drink my Coke, and it's a lively lift still for me. 
And as Jesse and I completely agree and we're nodding during the piece, that cane sugar and those Mexican Cokes, that's the real deal. That they're available now all over the United States. Well, it's just such a blessing. And we're a bunch of Coke addicts here, and I'm chief addict. Addict in chief here at Our American Stories. The Coca-Cola story, a classic American story here on Our American Stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs>